Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and uh, here we are in week two of the limbo known as the partial federal government shutdown. As the political impasse drags on, it's starting to hit a broad swath of Washingtonians, both directly and indirectly. You have contractors being told to stay at home. You've got all these workers at coffee shops and dry cleaning stores that usually cater to federal employees. And then we have the potential impact on the district government and the services it provides. And that reality is not lost on Mayor Vincent Gray. Families in Chicago or Cincinnati or Las Vegas, they're not worried about their local governments that they won't be able to provide basic services. They're not worried about their schools. They're not worried about their police and fire protection or their health services or their trash collection. And neither should the families and residents of the District of Columbia have to worry about that because it is our money, ladies and gentlemen. That was Gray speaking on Wednesday, a day when the mayor and Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid had a dramatic confrontation on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. So with these and other ripple effects to explore, we're calling today's show Shut Down City. We'll consider how political gridlock is affecting worker morale, and we'll hear how a local health clinic is trying to hold on despite a freeze in payments for its services. Plus, we'll hear about other ways the shutdown is affecting the city, from the closure of a beloved stable in Rock Creek Park to a special program for kids at the National Arboretum. But before we get to all that, as we were planning this show, we put out a PIN query. That's PIN as in the Public Insight Network, which is an online tool we use to get feedback and story ideas from our listeners. You can find more information at metroconnection.org PIN. But anyway, we were asking folks to write in and tell us how the government shutdown was affecting them and those they know. And we heard from a bunch of people. Among them... Hi. Hello. Come on in. Thank you. This woman. I'm just finishing up dinner, so... You're a guinea pig tonight. I've never made pot roast. My mother used to. I remember that it was pot roast and it was cooked in beer and it had vegetables. That's all I know. So Her name is Shawnee Adams and she lives in Indian Head, Maryland with her husband, Ian. This doing? is Ian. Yeah. Nice to meet you. And this is Ren. Hello, you. Look at you with your big smile. Ren is their six-month-old baby girl. Their older daughter... Hi. How are you? Good. ...is in first grade. What's your name? Alia. Nice to meet you. Ian is employed by the federal government. I work at the Naval Research Laboratory. I, I'm an electrical engineer. But as of yet, his office has not been affected by the shutdown. It's a very academic environment, so like researchers at a university would go out and get funding. We, we work in a very similar manner. And so as long as we have money to pay people, we can continue to work. Or to put it more officially, they're capitally funded. They don't depend on appropriations. But as a result... Once that money is not there to pay people anymore, then we get furloughed, too. Not that Ian is a stranger to uh, getting furloughed. With the sequester, he was only working four days a week this summer. And while he pretty much knew that furlough was coming, he didn't know when. In the unknown, there's a lot more stress. And to add to that stress, he and Shawnee were expecting a baby. A baby that, well, um, let's just say they hadn't exactly planned for. We'd hope for it, but... But we had been told that that might not happen at this point. So it's kind of that double whammy of, we're going to have a baby and we're going to be furloughed. Great. So with that income slash looming large, you know, it was a 25% cut. Shani immediately amped up her work as a freelance consultant in nonprofit fundraising and development. I said yes to a number of long-term projects that I knew would carry over through the delivery of the baby and, you know, into the first couple months of having her. So I was literally sending emails from the delivery room. <laughs> and 
And, you know, we got home from the hospital and I was back at my desk. Since then, she says, it's like she and Ian have been running a single parent household. We can't afford enough child care to not be working at the same time. This this interview is actually a really rare opportunity for us to spend time together. Usually he gets home from work and I say, I've prepped dinner. Here's, you know, it's ready. I'm And I go in my office and I close the door. And sometimes he goes to bed before I'm done working and, you know, we hardly see each other. Which is doable, she says. But I would rather be doing that by choice than by necessity. And that necessity would become even greater if Ian gets furloughed again. The summer furlough really ate through a lot of the savings that we had. We're a young family. We're in our first home. We have young children, and we had them right when we got married. You know, we didn't take time to build up, a, you know, a big nest egg. And it's not like you can call the bank and say, I've been furloughed. Can we, you know, defer a month of mortgage payment? Because we tried, and they were like, you can default if you want. <laughs> but the thing is, as much as she and Ian have been hurting, Shawnee says she knows people who are hurting much, much more. I wait at the bus stop every morning with a woman who works at a daycare around the corner that her sister owns, and half of their kids are not coming now because those children's parents have been furloughed and they can't afford to pay for the daycare. And so she's saying, I don't know if my sister can afford to pay me, and I'm already living in public housing, and I already work two jobs. So we're definitely in the bucket of lucky people. (laughs) And that's something both Shawnee and Ian try to remember. Their bank account may have seen better days, but for now, they still have their house, their jobs, and most importantly, their family. I do have to say that one of the nice things about the furlough in the summer was I got an extra day a week to spend with both my daughters. But you know, Silver linings. A, yes. Silver we definitely linings. look for the silver linings <laughs> in all of this. Give me your ring. No jewelry in bed. My wedding ring. Oh, that's your wedding ring. So as the Adams tuck their kids into bed each night, and this evening Ian's putting down baby Wren while Shawnee sings lullabies to Alia. Go to sleep. Those silver linings shine brightly, no matter how dark the future may or may not be. Have good dreams, go to sleep, I love you, good night, I love you. I love you. Again, this story came to us through the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and for us to get input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the Public Insight Network at metroconnection.org slash PIN. So obviously, Ian and Shawnee Adams are among the many, many federal workers and contractors feeling some economic insecurity as the shutdown grinds on. And over the past two weeks, some of those workers have been commiserating with their peers online through a social network for federal employees. It's called GovLoop, and it now has nearly 70,000 members. Jonathan Wilson talked with GovLoop's founder and CEO, Steve Ressler, earlier this week to get some perspective on how the shutdown is affecting worker morale in both the short term and the long. So 
I'm wondering what kind of discussion leading up to the shutdown that you had among your colleagues and also, I guess, on your website about what was going to happen and then how much of a shock it was when it actually did turn into a shutdown for you and your colleagues and your users. Yeah, what was interesting kind of going into the shutdown, obviously there was some chatter on the site. So there's some questions around, do you think this is going to happen? But a lot of the folks actually didn't think it was going to happen, which was partly, I think, last, was it last year? Uh, We saved it the last second, uh, the government shut down 1150. And I think there was just some sort of hope that, hey, this will, this will be solved in time, just like how we solved the last kind of issues. So when it actually happened, people were pretty shocked. And uh, really kind of on the site, people that were really hoping right away that, oh, this will just last a day, day or two, uh, shouldn't be a big deal. And now we're kind of uh, in week two wondering, when's this going to end? And you know, this, we, this is the first time for a lot of government employees for this to happen since the last time it happened was 17 years ago. I know that you believe the latest generation of government workers is more ambitious than than the stereotype and doesn't necessarily see federal employment as some sort of lifetime commitment, but even may see it as a sort of stepping stone. What do you think that this latest blow to the idea of this being a stable, safe job means to all of that? Yeah, it, it definitely is having an impact. I mean, I think the the idea of you're signed up for government and you're going to work 40 years and they'll take care of you and uh, you're going to get a pension just isn't the same anymore. The pension's different. They, they reformed it. So the current federal employee has a primarily a 401k-based system. As you see now with sequestration, but also has happened with layoffs and, and furloughs that I think that, that trust that you can trust your agency to take care of you for 40 years isn't there. Plus, I think this generation doesn't necessarily want that. That's not the expectation. They they know companies aren't that way anymore. The idea that you sign up for GE or Ford to take care of you for 40 years isn't there as well. So why would it be any different in government, I think, is some of the youth's perspective. Do you feel like federal managers have to make you know, an individual plea to each worker when they get back saying, you know, you are worth something, even though you were not accepted or you were furloughed. When you come back, we still want you. You're still important. And this job is still stable and a good investment in your future. Is that something that that needs to be said when all these government workers get back in the office? In general, people understand the concept, right, of, hey, if there's, uh, you know, we got to have 90 percent of the, the workforce not work, uh, that, that can't be everyone going back to work. 90 percent have to be off. But I do think it leads to kind of some anxiety of, you know, am I useful? Am I valued? As well as some a little bit of resentment. So uh, hopefully that'll that'll kind of go away after we get back to the day to day. And I think that's another federal manager's uh, duty to do. Say, hey, you know, everyone is valued. You know, we had to kind of make these arbitrary decisions on accepted versus non-accepted. But in the end, we need all of you to deliver our mission and help help our citizens. What do you think the, the lasting impact here is? I mean, we don't know how long the shutdown will go, but after it after it hopefully ends, what do you think the lasting impact will be? It's a scar, right? I definitely think it, it impacts morale. Uh, it's hard to get folks back excited again. Uh, I do think in the end, I really respect the ingenuity of a federal employee, and I, I think they come to work because they believe in what they're doing. Uh, I do think they, they do it because they want to have an impact. So uh, despite all the difficulties in getting beaten up and you know the shrinking workforce where baby boomers are retiring, the budgets are short, so we're not replacing all workers, 
Uh, government employees are asked to do even more uh, with less every day. Uh, and I, but I do think in the end that there's a, a bunch of creative, innovative folks that want to improve government, that want to improve service. I see them every day on GovLoop, and uh, I'm inspired by them. And I, I do think when they come back, they'll, they'll help kind of solve these gigantic problems uh, despite all the issues with shutdown and, and the impact on morale. That was GovLoop founder and CEO Steve Ressler talking with Metro Connections Jonathan Wilson. What do you think? Will the shutdown have a lasting impact on worker morale? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Time for a break now, but when we get back, how governmental gridlock is affecting local health clinics. After 25 years of being here, this is not one of those moments where uh, I feel like I can ride the wave. This is not going to be okay. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection, where today we are touring Shutdown City. We'll kick off this part of the show in Northwest Washington in Adams Morgan. That's where you'll find Mary's Center, a health clinic serving low-income families. The place is bustling, with a waiting room full of young mothers calming their crying children and making their next appointments. It doesn't look like anything has changed since the shutdown, but as Emily Berman tells us, unless the federal gears start cranking, Mary's Center could change an awful lot. Every year, there are more than 18,000 district residents who rely on Mary's Center for their health care needs. Sorry, my hands are cold, aren't they? Can you lay down? Half of these patients use Medicaid or the D.C. Health Care Alliance, which is a local health insurance program. And during the government shutdown, the district government isn't able to make Medicaid or Health Care Alliance reimbursements to the clinics that serve them. Maria Gomez is the CEO and founder of Mary Center. She says they're not getting paid for this week's appointments, and they also haven't received checks for the $585,000 they're owed in reimbursements for the past three months. So what happens in the city, and the reason why we haven't, we're not getting paid, is because this is tied to the, the budget. District's budget is, is authorized by Congress. And so the 2014 budget has not been approved by Congress. So the 2014 budget, starting in October 1st, has been tied up with this whole Congress shutdown. And what we are asking the mayor, as he did by keeping the city open, by saying, by the way, we are cleaning federal parks, we're picking up you know, trash from the federal parks because of fear of rodents, why can't we do the same thing with essential services like medical care 
if we're concerned about rodents, we should be concerned about children who will end up in the emergency room. A spokesman for Mayor Gray says the district's hands are tied. Because D.C. isn't treated like a state, it's legally cut off from accessing its Medicaid funds for past or future payments. When the shutdown's over, the money should start flowing again. But in the meantime, it's getting increasingly difficult to pay the doctors and nurses and support staff who provide health care for low-income Washingtonians. How are you proceeding? If I am a patient who had an appointment in the health clinic, uh, you know, this afternoon, I could come in and expect what? Right now, we are here. We're serving. We have the doors open. People are very, very, very worried, so our phone lines are are just off the hook, people calling for mental health. We run on very, very, very small small margins because there are still so many people that are uninsured. There are so many services that we have to provide to people when they come through these doors. Somebody comes in, they, they, they see the doctor, and we find out that, you know, they're going to be homeless that day or that there's domestic violence and we have to spend the whole day with that individual. So so it's not just it's not just the Medicaid services. Um, we also have to, with those dollars, have to sustain other providers besides medical providers. How long do you think Mary Center can go on like this? What we're trying to do is we're trying to really up, turn up every stone. So we're trying not paying certain vendors that we know that can withstand us not paying their bills. We're trying to make sure that we pay the essentials, right? Health insurance, that we pay our taxes, you know, employee taxes, that that we pay payroll. Right now, we don't have the assets to go on beyond our payroll on October the 18th. For certain, we're going to have furloughs at the management level. And, And the question is how deep those furloughs will go down below the management level. Gomez says the shutdown is also affecting federal grants that were expected to kick in on October 1st. So there's less money for things like the WIC program, which provides food and education to low-income mothers and children. To keep the programs running, Gomez is working on extending a line of credit with her local bank and asking donors to help. It hasn't been easy. Do you think that this shutdown may impact how much money you can raise at the end of the year, which is, you know, typically a a good time for nonprofits? A large part of our donors are government workers. At the end of the year is where, you know, at least for Mary Center, we make 25% of our donations, 20, 30% of our donations. So, um, so I think, I think that, you know, it's not just the shutdown, but it's, it's the um, sequestration, which the government workers already took, in which they're, they're not getting back pay, back pay for that. There is very little appetite um, for them to be giving money away as, as they're generously done in the past. There's no money. This is not one of those moments after 25 years of being here. This is not one of those moments where uh, I feel like I can ride the wave. This is not going to be okay. That was Mary's Center CEO and founder Maria Gomez speaking with Metro Connections' Emily Berman. Another local agency looking forward to the shutdown's end is Metro. Every day the stalemate lasts, Metro loses a considerable chunk of its rush hour ridership. And this is coming on the heels of a fiscal year in which Metro saw rail ridership dip by 4%. 
And that is the topic of our regular transportation segment from A to B. Transportation reporter Martin DeCaro sat down with Metro Board member Mary Hines, who represents Arlington. She's also a member of the Arlington County Board. Since the federal government shutdown, the partial shutdown, mm-hmm. Metro has lost about 20% of its ridership. How is this hurting your budget? Because fares make up a large part of your operating expenses. They certainly do, Martin. And of course, our ridership is lower on Metro Rail than on Metro Bus, where the riders do pay an even larger portion of the cost of the ride. We're monitoring the situation. You know, it's hard to sort of know what strategies we might need to employ until we know how big the hole is. And Metro staff have made some adjustments, not running as many cars, which uses less fuel and less propulsion. So so we're trying to manage the costs as much as we can without degrading service for the many people who still need to ride. Service cuts have not been decided yet, right? That's exactly right, and I think we've, we're trying really hard not to increase headways or make it harder for people who still need the trains to come and go to work. And, and as I said, interestingly, we're down a lot more on the trains, which is where it appears more of our federal riders actually ride. People notice the big rebuilding that's going on right. every weekend. The shutdown, the fare revenue that's being lost won't affect that program. But once the system is rehabilitated, you don't really want to be dealing with lost revenue, right? Because there is some maintenance that you're going to have to do. We estimate that that long term in terms of keeping this 100, when once the, the Silver Line goes all the way to Dulles, this is 125 miles of heavy rail in our region, that the cost to maintain that going forward is going to be close to a billion dollars a year. That's just the reality of the system we have and where it is. So, so yeah, maintenance is always going to be with us, as is, and, and once we get through this rebuilding phase, we will have a much more organized program of rebuilding. Back to the present. Another aspect of the shutdown that's hurting Metro's bottom line right now is D.C., as a jurisdiction, was unable to make its uh, quarterly payment of about $74 million. What can you tell us about that? To the best of my understanding, the reason they can't make their payment has to do with the fact that their budget is tied in with the federal government and they don't have permission to spend um, on these kinds of payments. D.C. makes its payment from its local revenues for the most part. I think we all believe that they are going to be able, once this is settled and once they get their permissions again, which, by the way, I think is kind of silly that the Congress can tell D.C. how they cannot spend money that they're collecting from their own citizens. But once that all gets sorted out, we have a lot of confidence that they'll be able to, to make their payment and we'll be fine. So we're about two weeks into this shutdown, when do you, as a Metro board member, start to get worried, if you're not already? (laughs) This concerns me, but it, it, it doesn't concern me only as a Metro board member. It actually concerns me for the region. This is really bad for our economy. It's really bad for our citizens who are losing. You know, now our federal employees are home and they know they're going to get paid, but it feels bad. The whole thing is so dysfunctional. So, you know, The metro system provides rides to about 40% of the federal workforce. The federal workforce needs to do its job. Congress needs to let them do its job, do their jobs, and we need to get back closer to normal as soon as we can because that's what the country needs. That was Metro Board member Mary Hines speaking with transportation reporter Martin DeCaro. 
pretty much everyone we've met on today's show so far thinks the gridlock in Washington is, surprise, surprise, no good. But if there's anyone who's celebrating the government shutdown, well, it's got to be the people who don't want any government to begin with, right? We have a situation where we have a good day for the anarchists. Why? Because the government is closed. That's Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid speaking last week on the shutdown's first day. Thing is, though, actual anarchists aren't too happy about the shutdown. And neither are more conservative small government types, libertarians. Jacob Fenston has the story. Legba Karafor is an anarchist organizer in D.C. He says this week's government shutdown looks nothing like an anarchist utopia. Look, when there's a real shutdown of the government, it's going to come from below, not from above. It's not going to be because a certain segment of politicians got into a fight with another segment of politicians. So what would it look like if the oppressive state apparatus came screeching to a halt? Carrefour has an example from a day you might remember. The snowpocalypse, the day when the entire government did shut down. Back in December 2009. D.C. was kind of like this weird insurrectionary utopia in snow for 24 hours. Everyone was in the streets, kind of like stunned and dazed. Everyone was really nice to each other. Uh, it seemed like alcohol was communized, as far as I could tell. People, you know, dug each other out. People helped each other. And it was a kind of utopian vision for me. Anarchism means a lot of different things to different people. But anarchists in general oppose hierarchies like governments and corporations in favor of horizontal organizations where everyone's more or less equal. It's a political theory dating back to the Enlightenment. Right now, anarchism is you know, mainly used as an insult. Anarchist is, a, is an insult. Nathan Schneider is a writer who identifies as an anarchist. He recently wrote a blog post questioning the idea that the shutdown is some kind of anarchist dream. While anarchists oppose government in general, he says, the parts they're most opposed to? The security apparatus, the military, these arms of oppression, prisons aren't shutting down. But the social safety net that many anarchists do approve of is in danger. You know, an anarchist vision of society is one in which it's a non-negotiable that everyone's basic needs are met. So some anarchists do see value in the federal government. Sam Jeweler, who became interested in anarchism during Occupy D.C. protests, says even though in an ideal society there would be no state, right now it's a necessary evil. Even though I have anarchist tendencies, I see the government as an invaluable bulwark against corporate power. If government disappeared today, he says, individuals would be less free because power-hungry corporations would dominate. If they were able to do what, everything they wanted to do, we'd have no clean water, no clean air, no livable wages. So if anarchists aren't exactly celebrating the shutdown, what about small government proponents on the other side of the political spectrum? We would like to see a permanent shutdown of non-essential services. Laura DeLome is a spokesperson for the Libertarian Party of Virginia, and she's also a libertarian candidate to represent Arlington in the House of Delegates. Libertarians were historically related to anarchists, but today the party's focus is more on getting government out of the way, while anarchists are just as focused on fighting corporate power. DeLome is no fan of the current shutdown. She says it's just political theater, but it does highlight services that could be stripped from the federal government. We believe um, those non-essential services should be left to the free market. Government shouldn't be doing things that aren't surrounding defense or protection of property or protection of our physical security. She acknowledges that would mean a lot of people losing their jobs, particularly in the county she's running to represent. But without the government dragging down private enterprise, she says, those workers would quickly find jobs in the private sector. 
Ryan Sabat, chairman of the D.C. Libertarian Party, says there's no question many of the services the federal government provides are necessary to society. But a libertarian would question whether or not that's actually the job of the federal government or whether that's the job of a state government or even a private organization. He says the shutdown does provide a chance to think outside the box. For example, with all the national parks and monuments closed because of congressional gridlock, maybe we should rethink how we administer those national treasures. You know, we don't have to lose the Washington Monument. You know, it can just be passed on to another entity that can take care of it, maybe in a better way than, you know, the Federal Park Service can, for example. And that's a fresh alternative that I don't think Americans are used to hearing. Anarchists also say the shutdown could be a learning moment. If it drags on, they're ready to step into the gaps left in federal services, providing an example of how grassroots groups can replace government. Patrick Bruner, who is an Occupy Wall Street organizer, has been part of the recent shutdown-related discussions. He says plans are in the works. To replace things like uh, Head Start so that children can have classes and be fed and organizing for things like in D.C. when the uh, trash starts piling up to provide an alternative for garbage trucks. Something similar happened in 2011 in Minnesota when the state government shut down for two weeks. Anarchists and other anti-authoritarians took over a local park, pooling resources to offer free meals to the public. They called it Shut Down, Rise Up. I'm Jacob Fenston. After the break... Politics, partisanship, and preschool. How local daycare centers are handling the shutdown. I was on the train this morning and two of our kids were on the other end of the train and they didn't see me, but I could hear them. Um, And a lady had sat down next to one of the children and was asking her if she was taking the train to school and so forth. And she turned around and she said, I'm at a new school today because Mr. Obama and Miss Holly closed my school down. (laughs) It's coming up on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And as the partial government shutdown stretches into its second week, we're calling today's show Shut Down City. In just a bit, we'll find out why it's not so easy being green at the National Arboretum right about now. And we'll meet some local comedians determined to turn those furloughed frowns upside down. First, though, we all know how this shutdown business has been affecting hundreds of thousands of adults. But what about the impact it's having? ABC. Ready? On kids. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A. These youngsters, aged 2 to 5, are enrolled in Bright Horizons, the preschool and early education program that partners with more than 850 employers worldwide. C-U-V. Including 16 U.S. government agencies. Bright Horizons has child care centers on site at places like the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, in Silver Spring, and here in D.C. at the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Energy, and the location we're visiting today, the rooftop playground of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. So these kids right here are NOAA kids? These are all, yep, these okay. are all NOAA kids and NOAA teachers on this side, and then FERC's kids are over there. Normally, says NOAA Center Director Holly Mutchler, the NOAA kids would be at NOAA and the FERC kids would be at FERC. 
But because of the government shutdown, we were unable to access our center at NOAA. And so we were able to be relocated to four other centers that are part of our network. Those centers include East End at Gallery Place, our Bid Kids location, and our GW University locations. And then, of course, FERC, which, by the way, is one of the few government agencies continuing to operate under, quote, normal conditions. They had a room that was empty, and that can happen in centers for various reasons because they're waiting for children to turn the age when licensing will allow them in a program. So we were really lucky that we were able to bring a whole class of kids here with teachers and parents aren't having to, you know, wonder who this person is that they don't know. You know, they know our teachers and and they they trust them and they know all those things. So it's great that we were able to keep the kids together and keep our teachers with them. It was also a challenge, says the NOAA Center's assistant director, Carrie McCauley. On Monday, September 30th, they had to contact the parents of all 85 NOAA kids to see who would require childcare if the government did indeed shut down the next day. Got the hard numbers as far as how many kids and the ages, um, and then reached out to our sister centers. Then they had to make sure they were complying with student-teacher ratios set by the state. You have to plan for a certain number of children need a teacher with them, depending on their ages, that varies. After all that came the office stuff. You know, they compiled files and licensing records. Made copies of everything that we needed. And as Holly Mutchler recalls, We pretty much took some laundry baskets and carried everything out that we thought might be of importance if we couldn't get back in. At the last minute at, you know, 10 o'clock Monday night, we were like, oh, the fish can't live in the center by themselves. So there's 10 fish living in my guest room right now all over the place. (laughs) Operation Bright Horizons at my house. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear that Nickel Jaws, the beta fish, uh, has not been abandoned to his fate. I think there would be a certain irony, particularly at Noah, if they just uh, <laughs> left, left the fish to his fate. Doug Miller's youngest daughter has been attending Bright Horizons Noah Center. When the shutdown happened, she was initially moved to FERC. And then they moved her to East End because she's two and a half and they had the wrong ratio of two-and-a-half-year-olds to one-year-olds to three-year-olds. I don't know what happened. They just said they had to move her. So when I was first looking at daycare for my kids when I used to work in D.C., I could have quoted you all the regulations. Now I just kind of send her where I'm told to send her. (laughs) Miller lives in Silver Spring and works in Greenbelt and Baltimore as an assistant federal public defender. He's actually working during the shutdown since his office is considered part of the judicial branch. That's to keep us kind of out of the chain of command that our nemesis over at the U.S. Attorney's Office are in. So we are separate from the prosecutors. Um, For that reason, we are not part of the whole executive branch determination in terms of who is exempted. Not that Miller is entirely immune, though. For the first 10 days or so of a shutdown, everything continues as normal. After that, we become free lawyers in every sense of the word because we, the judiciary runs out of money to pay us. But for now, he's delighted to have child care for his daughter, though he admits for him it's been a bit tricky. I've got to assume that the NOAA Center was quite um, convenient given that you live in Silver Spring and you could just drop her there. How do you feel about this new arrangement as a parent? Well, this morning, when after having driven all the way from Silver Spring to Gallery Place and was then, you know, on a conference call with a judge and, you know, two prosecutors and one of my colleagues sitting on the BW Parkway an hour and 45 minutes after I'd left home this morning, was I so thrilled? No. But, you know, it's nothing compared to the effort that they put into making it available and certainly nothing compared to the fact that obviously there are a lot of people who are working without pay or not working without pay and just waiting for this all to shake out. 
And actually, Holly Mutchler and her Bright Horizons colleagues are waiting to see how this government shutdown will shake out, too. With two of their 16 federal facilities closed, they've only secured alternate space through the end of October. If it were to extend outside of that, we'd have to continue planning. And while the shutdown prompted more than half of the NOAA Center parents to pull their kids out of childcare, Mutchler says many have begun to change their minds. You know, on day one, families might not have been so in need of care and we're going to stay home with their kids and, and things like that. But by day six and seven, are like, OK, I want care now. And she and her colleagues hope they can keep providing that care and keep families' spirits up, even though so many agencies of the federal government continue to be shut down. This story is another one that came to us through our Public Insight Network, or PIN. We've been hearing all sorts of interesting shutdown stories this week through PIN, so if you'd like to share your experiences with us, visit metroconnection.org slash PIN. So while we're talking about kids, let's take a trip to the Washington Youth Garden, which provides educational, hands-on activities for children in the district. The Youth Garden is based in the National Arboretum, which is operated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. So you guessed it, it's closed to the public during the shutdown. Metro Connection's Stephen Yenzer caught up with Anna Benfield, the garden's education programs manager, to ask how the shutdown is affecting both her work and the plants children care for. So the vegetable production area with herbs and flowers and fruit trees is only about three-quarters of an acre, and the whole surrounding area is about an acre. Yeah, and we have a little path that goes through the woods. Oftentimes that's kids' favorite part. They've never had the experience to be out in nature, so we walk quietly and we put up our ears and we stop in the woods and we close our eyes to listen to the birds and at the end of the trip we always ask them what did you learn today or what was your favorite part and a lot of them say oh when we walked in the woods some of them are scared they think we're like really going to go on a walk for the woods they think oh oh, what do you think is out here and they're like oh maybe maybe crocodiles (laughs) maybe bears and we're like no 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 probably not well sometimes they'll insist that they've they've seen outrageous creatures while they're in the woods but but it's really meaningful to get kids out learning not only about where their food comes from but just being more comfortable around insects being out in a natural space so I feel really lucky to be at the arboretum to really create that environment really away from the city even though we're right in the heart of it but you guys don't have access to that space during the shutdown that's correct we're only able to go on the grounds um, once every couple days to water and to tend to other essential functions. So can you tell me how the shutdown is affecting the plants at the Arboretum? I mean, we're not able to do a lot of the typical things we'd be doing at fall time yet, so cutting plants back, pruning, planting cover crop, continuing to harvest our summer crops so that they can stay productive for as long as possible. Um, So fortunately, plants have that force of nature inside that's going to push through but we're glad that we get to be there to, to water, which is the most critical thing if we're not getting the rain. And how often are you watering? Um, if it hasn't been raining, we go in and water a couple times a week. 
And are there going to be long-term ramifications of only being able to water a couple times a week versus... Mm, That's a great question. The most vulnerable plants for us are the seedlings that we've just transplanted. So it is tricky, especially because we have a lot of pest issues. So if you could send a message directly to the members of Congress who are (laughs) keeping you off from entering the Arboretum, what would it be? Think of the children. (laughs) Um... Also, the small moments, all the, all the work that nonprofits like ours and other agencies, I think that's such a loss, all the small moments, the kid that's going to hold the worm and see the butterfly, and there's a lot, of, a lot of meaning and a lot of impact from those small, magical moments where they say at the end of a field trip, I didn't know that food grew. Literally didn't know that food came from plants, and compromise little elementary school kids right think about what you learned in kindergarten so yeah hopeful that we'll get to have our garlic planting party and this can be resolved as soon as possible so we can get the kids back back out back out in the field that was the washington youth gardens anna benfield talking with metro connections Stephen yenzer Now, the closure of the Washington Youth Garden is just one of the shutdown's ripple effects. Another is the Rock Creek Horse Center, right in the middle of Rock Creek Park. Roughly 50 horses make their home there. Half are owned by the company that manages the center for the U.S. Park Service. The other half are privately owned. But because of the shutdown, the center is closed to the general public. One member of that public is Lisa Preby. I live in Springfield, Virginia. I drive about 40 minutes to come out to Rock Creek Park Horse Center twice a week so that I can ride. And as Lisa told reporter Lauren Ober, for a horse lover such as herself, the impact of this closure has been huge. I started riding here about three or four years ago because I've been a rider my whole life, and I just couldn't bear to be away from the horses any longer, really. And this was the only place in the area that would allow the public to come in and ride. That was what I started with, just the walk around the trails one hour, and you get to a point where if you're really a a horse person, really a rider, that's not enough. I've been riding since I was about five or six. Um, In my neighborhood, everybody had horses, and so finally I did too. (laughs) And yes, just uh, jump on bareback and go. Yeah, that was was basically my childhood. I usually go out on my own just to uh, be with me and the horse. I like that. I go out for about an hour, just explore the trails. We mostly walk. We do some trotting and cantering. And it's very relaxing, and it just centers me. I do have chronic fatigue syndrome, and this has been what I think is a big factor in bringing me back and increasing my stamina and just my drive to get well. And I had noticed with the twice-a-week riding that I was really starting to improve a lot. And, you know, emotionally also. Having chronic fatigue syndrome is, is a rough disease. And uh, this, was, this was my therapy. This definitely was. Driving in, it really made me sad because I saw the barriers, and it reminded me that I can't come in here. 
and take a ride, which is what I've been doing here for the last three or four years, coming in and getting my horse fix. The first thing I knew about the shutdown was uh, getting a notification from the barn's Facebook page that they were closed to the public right after midnight on the night of the shutdown. Yeah, that was that was a huge disappointment, and it's definitely been affecting my my mood and my uh, physical well-being at this point. And I worry about the horses. I worry about you know what's going to happen to the stable. You know, they're losing a lot of money. I think that it's really pretty ridiculous that we're being shut out of our land, our parks. It just doesn't seem like national parks, national monuments should be part of the shutdown, but I just want them to get their stuff together. And so I can get back out here and we can all get back to doing what we love. That was Lisa Preby, who shared her story with reporter Lauren Ober. You know that old saying about laughing to keep from crying? Well, the guys we'll meet next know a thing or two about that. They're planning a show called The Nine Comedy Series, one they hope will provide a bit of cheer to furloughed federal workers. Lauren Landau sat down with them to find out why they think laughter is the very best medicine in these trying times. Doug Hecox has been doing stand-up comedy for 25 years. I like to make snowmen, and last week I was disappointed because it was three inches of snow and I had to push it around and I didn't make a very good snowman. I made a snow hillary, He jokes about everything from relationships to politics. And this Sunday, he'll be one of nine comics performing in the Nine Comedy Series at the Iota Club and Cafe in Arlington. The shutdown of the federal government wasn't on Justin Trawick's radar when he started planning the event, but he now says furloughed federal workers could use a few laughs. So this show is going out to them. I sat down with Trawick and Hecox to discuss the showcase and why they think sharing a good laugh is a great idea. I'm Doug Hecox. I'm a professional stand-up comedian and writer. I am Justin Trawick. I'm a musician and entrepreneur in the Washington, D.C. area. So let's talk a little bit about this Sunday's show. It's aimed at kind of cheering up furloughed federal workers. Why did you make that decision? Is there a discount for federal workers? When Doug and I first discussed this, this wasn't actually in the cards. We planned this before the furlough happened. It also just happened to be that we had a whole bunch of people happen to be on the lineup that worked for the government and are now currently on um, spring break. But this is definitely turning into a show that's supporting all these people. I think a lot of the people in the audience are going to be a lot of these displaced federal workers. They're going to need a little levity. It's an unhappy city, and this show, we hope, will help cheer people up. In what ways do you think that seeing a comedy show might help people who are currently kind of, sort of, unemployed? I mean, I know as a musician, personally, I listen to more stand-up comedy and funny talk radio than I actually do music. And it's what keeps me going every day and keeps me from... going to crying fits at night. You have to get your mind off of things. I mean, it's a distraction. There's nothing but gloom and doom out there. It's nice to have a bright spot regardless of what form it takes, whether it be music or dance. But comedy is very fun, and this is the most educated city in the country, and it takes smart people to be funny. 
And that's why D.C. has so many funny people. And that's also why we all laugh at Congress. Do you think that they might feel a little better to hear you poking fun at Congress, or do you think they don't want to hear a darn thing about the hell? We'll see. I mean, that really is the, the trick. I, uh, I've performed for probably every type of audience there is, and it's really tough to know until you've had a few jokes gone out just to kind of see how the crowd reacts to them. You know, if we don't hear anybody really going for the political stuff, we'll talk about dating and grandparents and all the usual targets. What do you think of the situation we're in, the shutdown, this looming debt ceiling? I don't want to brag, but I believe I could solve this entire government shutdown in probably two days. The simple approach, in my opinion, is that for every day that this stalemate continues, all of the people in Congress have to remove one article of clothing. (laughs) And that's where, again, Ted Cruz is my ace in the hole, because nobody wants to see that. But I should add, uh, this isn't intended to be just for federal employees. I mean, everybody in America is affected by this. It's not just the government workers. So we encourage all of the non-federal employees to come as well. They're going to have a good time, too. Comedy is comedy, regardless of who your boss is. That was Doug Hecox and Justin Trawick speaking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. Their show is coming up this Sunday night with half-priced admission for furlough to federal employees. We have more information on our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Emily Berman, Jacob Benston, Jonathan Wilson, Martin DeCaro, Lauren Landau, and Stephen Yenzer, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Stephen Yenzer. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can find all the music we use each week on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of the show today, you can stream the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there or find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll bring you a show all about connections. We'll look at a Montgomery County program connecting people in need with food that would otherwise be thrown away. We'll meet a Gallaudet student who's connecting with audiences as the first deaf rapper. And we'll hear from the D.C. public school staffers who act as a bridge to the many people who call seeking their help every single day. I just moved here. I have five kids in five different grades, and I need them to be in school tomorrow. So how can you help me figure out the information I need? I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.